Hello and welcome everyone to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We're Forward Radio WFMP LP Louisville, broadcasting from the top of the historic Hayburn Building here at 106.5 FM and we live stream to the world at forwardradio.org. I want you to go to that website, become a part of the station. Uh, We can't do it without you. It's radio for the people, by the people, and that means getting people like you behind the microphones, but it also means getting the people's dollars in our bank account to keep us on the air. It's an amazing community treasure that only costs $20 a day to sustain. So maybe you could become a sponsor for the entire day for just 20 bucks at forwardradio.org. Well, what we do here on Sustainability Now each week is get folks behind the microphones and in in the virtual studio in this case, uh, who are thinking about and doing the work of creating a more sustainable future where we not only think about uh, an environment that's clean and and functioning ecosystems, right? Uh, And one that works for people, but also one where the economy works. (laughs) And and I'm really excited to focus on that last piece today with my guest, U of L economist Tom Lambert is in the virtual studio. Welcome, Tom. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, The reason we're bringing Tom on now is kind of as a little preview for a a public talk he's going to give virtually as well uh, coming up on uh, next Monday, the 14th of September at 7 p.m. Uh, and this is sponsored by your local chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby. And we'll talk a little bit more about who they are. Uh, and the talk is on incentivizing sustainability through carbon fees. Uh, and you can register for it uh, and get more information at uh, on Eventbrite at ev- incentivizing sustainability.eventbrite.com. Uh, Professor Lambert's in the economics department at U of L's College of Business, and, and he's recently been assigned to their equine industry program as an applied economist. But before U of L, he taught for Northern Kentucky University's Master's of Public Administration program and the economics department at IUS. He's got a master's in economics from UK and a PhD in urban and public affairs from our own U of L. And he concentrated in urban economics and economic development. Uh, we'll talk more about CCL a little bit further down uh, in the conversation, but I just want to get things started with you, Tom. And this first question I just have to ask, and I don't even want you to take it personally at all because uh, some of my best friends are economists. <laughs> like I, my advisor for my master's degree was an economist. Actually, one of my favorite classes in college was Intro to Political Economy. But I, for the sake of my listeners who are thinking about like, Reaganomics and the 2008 financial collapse and just the incredible wealth inequalities. Why should we trust economists, Tom? (laughs) Well, that's a very good question. Um, And uh, I'm not sure that there's an easy answer because (laughs) uh, there's the old joke uh, that that Harry Truman always wanted to meet a one-armed economist. And when asked why, he said, well, because they're always saying on the one hand, there's this, but on the other <laughs> hand, there's that. And he felt like he never could get a straight answer. That's a and good this one. is particularly true in macroeconomics where we have uh, such um, diverse views. Now, microeconomics, not there, there's more unanimity, more hmm. consensus. Not I don't want to mislead people and have you think it's 100%. Labor economics, there's some disagreement on different things, particularly the minimum wage, et cetera. But 
in macroeconomics, you have a whole lot more disagreement. And so that's why so many times uh, people will walk away just shaking their heads, <laughs> heads like, I, I don't understand what this guy or this that woman is talking about because he or she just contradicted the previous person. Right, right. And that's, you know, you get into different frames of references, different uh, perspectives and what you believe works and, and doesn't work. And, you know, how you see the historical data is often subject to interpretation. I mean, people say, well, history is loaded with facts. Well, yes, but you also have to interpret those facts as well. I think. So I can see the, the skepticism yeah. and it's not like accounting or other bis business dis disciplines where things are pretty cut and dry. Mm. Um, there's, there's some forecasting and, you know, a lot of stats and statistical analysis, which as you probably know, revolves around estimates. Estimates are often correct. Estimates sometimes are not correct. <laughs> and, and, a, and a lot about economics is about uh, our assumptions, right? Uh, there's kind of some assumptions built into our modeling. And often those right. assumptions are about how very complicated humans are going to behave. <laughs> exactly. And I think, we yeah. I think we run into a lot of trouble when we try and oversimplify oh, yeah. that. Right. Or 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 yes. assume that everybody in a certain class or group of people is going to behave the same way. And in our messy world, it doesn't it doesn't always work out the way we had planned or, or modeled. Right. Uh, and and exactly. then there's become sort of infinite uh, ways the model could have worked out. Uh, had we known, had we built in all of these unknown factors from the beginning. Right. Right. Oh, exactly. Uh, the, the, a guy who won the uh, Nobel Prize in economics a few years ago, Richard Thaler, I read his book a couple of years ago, um, was very good at pointing out the, the, the flaws in, in this assumption of rationality of all people, agents in the marketplace. And to a certain degree, people do try to act as rational as possible, but a lot depends on how you define rational. Mm. And rational, your rational behavior also depends upon your values, and this varies from person to person. So, yep, you know um, that um, the whole concept of rationality, how you define scarcity, and how people deal with it um, varies from from individual to, to individual. Although we do make this assumption that in general, people try to be rational, they try to deal with scarcity and limitations. Um, but some people face more <laughs> scarcity than others. Yes. <laughs> so. Yes. Exactly. And and that could be. I, I I can see how we can run into problems there too. Like you know, econ economists tend to be you know pretty well educated uh, of of the higher classes in general, the academics, and we know that group tends to be a lot of people who look like you and me, white guys, right? And maybe what we think is rational behavior it completely doesn't work when it's applied to people in much different circumstances than we find ourselves. Right. And so that's sure. how any academic in any discipline runs into trouble, I think is like applying what they know from their lived experience, uh, inaccurately to, you know, all these other communities with very different lived experiences. And and the reason I'm, the reason I'm dwelling on this so much is what we're going to talk about for the rest of the day here is, you know, predicting behaviors based on policy. And it's, I don't know how we'd make good policy without that, right? So it is really important to the work of policymaking. Uh, but we, I guess we got to be smarter about how we do it, right? Right, right. 
I mean, the, the whole purpose of, of course, of, of, of trying to modify behavior like with cigarette taxes or taxes on gambling or anything else is to try to modify behavior. But we still have people going out and buying a carton of cigarettes, regardless of how how much uh, the tax per pack is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> on average, it does work. But in but in every specific case, not 100 percent. You're right. Yeah. So what your talk on uh, the the 14th at 7 p.m. with the Citizens Climate Lobby is going to be about is about the potential economic impacts and behavior changes that would result from a bill that the CCL has been lobbying for for a long time, H.R. 763, called the Energy Innovation and Carbon mm -hmm. Dividend Act. It's a bipartisan bill. That's been from the beginning. Like the only way we're going to get this through is if it's bipartisan and it's revenue neutral. And it's a climate solution that has been proposed by CCL. Many predict that if it becomes law, carbon emissions in the U.S. could be reduced by like 40% in a dozen years. And the economy, meanwhile, could be improved through, through market stimulation. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how this issue might play out, what this, what this bill would do in, in real terms on the ground. Well, as... As I understand it, if they just simply raise the taxes and then gave each person a reimbursement, I mean, raise taxes on the utilities, raise gasoline taxes at the level of the um, producer and distributor. If they just simply gave everyone the same amount back that they were spending in lieu of having to pay more, that would not have an impact because it would just, it would be a wash, basically. Hmm. There really wouldn't be an incentive. My understanding when I read the bill is that there would be a flat amount refunded to people. And so therefore, it's based upon the notion that lower and middle income families use less electricity and natural gas. I don't know. It, it didn't say anything about gasoline consumption. I think it would be the same as high income. But it's based on the assumption, assumption that those people typically have smaller homes, hmm. maybe just well, almost always one home rather than two or three, you know, don't usually don't have a vacation home or anything like that. And it would be based upon, you know, smaller businesses have smaller square footage, would have less in utilities than larger corporations, which may have multiple locations, et cetera. So that larger, oh, um, house, well, households of higher income, which also would be bigger energy consumers, would get less back basically. And lower middle income families would get more back. Mm. So they don't bear the brunt of this, uh, of a higher energy cost that the Congress or whomever would levy upon uh, um, uh, the producer, the utility companies. And since utility companies are monopolists, they're going to be able to pass on all of their increased costs, all of the taxes onto the consumer. Uh, of course, they would, and then knowing that everyone's going to get a refund, they would be less likely to try to offer some types of incentives to, to keep people with them because they're, they're probably thinking, well, they're going to get all their money back and then some as well. Although the purpose, as I understand this legislation, is to get people to switch, Mm -hmm. to make the move, give them the money to make the move toward more renewable energy, which you would hope would happen. And if they see energy prices continuing to go up and maybe no refund in the future <laughs> or no rebate on their energy costs, 
then they would have the incentive to to invest in solar or wind power or or what have you or conserve more within their households there there's still a lot of homes out there that don't have insulation in their yeah rooms, uh, or throughout much of the house we still i mean it's going to be fewer and fewer every year but even conservation would help but my understanding again would be that uh, lower middle income families would come out ahead they should have the incentive to invest in, in in renewable energy. The tax would therefore be revenue neutral. The federal government really isn't supposed to keep any of it, although it's still not explained to me how they're going to cover the administrative cost of actually going out and collecting the tax and then redistributing, unless there are already mechanisms or a an administration or some type of bureaucracy, what have you, that's already there they can handle that easily with almost zero cost. Usually that's not the case. For every tax, there's some type of overhead or yeah, sure. administrative costs. You have to have the collectors. You have to have um, a system for sending out uh, the reimbursements. I think politically, if Congress would pass something like that, the majority of the people would be in favor of it. Now, I'm not a political scientist, but... I do know that higher income folks um, do usually vote in higher numbers. They lobby more. They usually, um, you know, have the access to I don't know, political action committees, et cetera. So whether it would break down in that regard, I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, however, I do like the idea it's similar to other proposals that have been proposed before in the past where in lieu of paying higher gasoline taxes or higher kilowatt per hour tax on your electricity bill. And that would be about four cents a kilowatt hour. Mm. If you wanted to take into consideration carbon emissions, pollution, et cetera, for electricity, for coal powered electricity, two cents per BTU or what have you for from what I've read, and these are conservative estimates to, to, to take care of all the externalities for uh, natural gas. Much It's lower, but still not zero. I, I've read proposals where, you, where people who feel that that's unfair, if, they, if they're within a certain income level, they can apply on their taxes for a refund of that, of those fees, and then within another level. So this is kind of similar. I see. Um, in that you're trying to gain some political or popular support. This is where we get into political economy, I guess. You're trying to build some political support by making it more palatable to the majority, the lower and the middle income. The only thing that, you know, maybe is the, the upper income folks, especially the larger businesses would, would push back unless there are provisions in there. I'll take a look again to try to help them out as well, because they are, after all, employers. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they're going to argue, well, that cuts into what I could give my employees, et cetera. So. Right. That argument's definitely going to be made. Uh, my guest today here on Sustainability Now is uh, UofL economist Tom Lambert, and we're talking about a little preview of his um, upcoming public <clears throat> talk on Monday the 14th at 7 p.m., which you can uh, register for at incentivizingsustainability.eventbrite.com. It's free, and it's sponsored by the Louisville chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby. So if you want to play along at home and learn a little bit more about this HR 763, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend, 
Dividend Act, you can go to citizensclimatelobby.org and you can find the local chapter uh, on Facebook, Citizens Climate Lobby Louisville. Um, so it sounds to me too, like one, like when you were saying about how you know upper income folks consume more energy and and therefore might feel the burden of this uh, increased tax on fossil fuels, uh, that it would lead to some wealth redistribution too, which seems sorely needed given the wealth gap in our nation, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think that's one of the purposes of the legislation. Of course, it was. Um, supposed to be a bipartisan bill, but I think just one Republican, I mean, technically it's bipartisan, <laughs> but the 71 people who sponsored it or something like this is what this is what I read. 70 were Democrats, one was a Republican. Uh. A guy who chose not to run for re-election for whatever reason, I, I forget, the, the Republican. So I guess soon it will just be solely a Democratic bill. Um, but yes, you get into some type of income distribution. Of course, one argument is that upper income households should be able to more easily transition to wind and solar power, especially as wind and solar become more and more competitive compared to coal-powered or, or coal-generated and natural gas-generated electricity. And it is becoming, the only concern is your upfront cost, but even that's beginning to change. The upfront investment, particularly as the technology improves and you can you know, band together a bunch of subscribers for, for solar panels uh, that may be located in an open space area or what have you. But that, well, that's another topic. But I, I think, you know, this argument that upper income can more easily transition so they don't need as much of a break is, is a valid one. And then if you set this up on a tax rebate basis, mm. you just boosted the gasoline tax by 50 cents a gallon and you made everybody pay more taxes on their LG&E bill or Kentucky Utilities bill or what have you. You're still talking about uh, some type of progressive income taxation, I guess, in that you were you would allow people below a certain income level to, I mean, it works almost the same, I guess, to deduct 100% of the increased cost and then within another income range, perhaps 75% until it, you know, gradually like student loan interest, uh, you're able to deduct a certain amount of that according to your income up until a certain income level is reached. And then, you know, the, the attitude of, of the government is, well, you're, you're making enough money to help you pay for this. So mm. I'm not going to be as generous. <laughs> <laughs> so, something along, along those lines. And I, I think at, at the consumer end, this also gives a boost to the solar and wind power industries in that you're trying to facilitate consumption. You're not subsidizing those industries. You're not picking any winners and losers, but you are making it easier for consumers to choose to try solar and to try wind power. Yeah, yeah. I we'll talk more about subsidies in a minute too, but I want to zero in on this issue of gas taxes. So you, d you definitely think that they're too low. Now, this is a time when we've seen the value of petroleum literally go negative in the past year. Uh, so overproduction is now just commonplace in this market. And I'd love your thoughts on why that's happening and everything. But if we advocated for even higher gas taxes, 
that would even further reduce consumption of this already negatively valued thing. So it seems like a, a mess to me. I mean, I get the point. We've got to get off this stuff. Uh, but how do we make it happen in, in, from an economic perspective? Well, there is a popular economics textbook by Gregory Mankiw, this professor at Harvard University. Guy's a little controversial. He was an economic advisor to George Bush, but he's also advised Democrats as well. He cited in one edition of his textbook, a 2006-2007 study that said, in order to capture all of the negative side effects, which are not included in the actual production and distribution cost and profit markup of a gallon of gasoline, if you wanted to get rid of or minimize traffic fatalities, fender benders, uh, adequately pay for roads, bridges, mm. et cetera, traffic lights, police, law enforcement that, that manages traffic. Yeah. And at the same time, Parking. Uh, <laughs> control for carbon, mm. uh, gasoline taxes would have to be at least $2 a gallon. Wow. <laughs> and this was a 2006, something like that, 2007 study. It's probably gone up. So if you just focus on carbon, I mean, the study, I, I have to go back and look at it. Let's just say it's, it's 50 cents a gallon. Uh, as, you, as you just said, Justin, gasoline prices have gone down. Part of that pandemic economic decline, plus Russia and Saudi Arabia getting into a price war. Uh, OPEC as a cartel, not functioning very well. Now these guys mm. are fighting among each other to a certain degree. There's always an incentive for one country to cheat and produce more and try to make more money. But actually now would be a good time, although a lot of consumers wouldn't like it, but you would want to try to have a higher gasoline tax at a time when gasoline taxes are low. And you could also uh, use a portion of that uh, to subsidize uh, mass transit. Mm -hmm. uh, most states don't uh, use their gasoline tax for mass transit at all. I know Kentucky doesn't. Mm -hmm. So TARC doesn't get anything from Frankfurt. I think it's almost all local and, and federal. And of course, what they collect in fees. So there will be an opportunity to expand mass transit, which if surveys are correct, Gen X and Gen Y are telling us the millennial generation, they're, they're all telling us that they would prefer mass yeah. transit. Denser neighborhoods, automobile usage has declined since 2008, particularly among the millennials. So maybe this will be an opportune time. And, and economists of all stripes, conservative, liberal, and liberal, have said for decades, the gasoline tax is way too low. Wow. Ridiculous. Huh. But the, the political will has never been there to, to raise it. Um, I, I, I can only remember two candidates who ran for president who said, let's raise the gasoline tax. <laughs> that was Ross Perot in 92 and also uh, Paul Songus in Massachusetts when he ran against Bill Clinton. And I think Clinton in 93 talked about raising the gasoline tax. He talked about a BTU tax. But even though he had a Democratic Congress, those proposals were, they just went by the wayside. But historically now, when adjusted for inflation, gasoline taxes now are fairly low. And I think uh, the, the political, it may be easier to do that now than, yeah. than in the past. Uh, surely you could... Maybe not 50 cents a gallon, but yeah. to a certain amount. 
and surely you could sell it to the public by saying, look, we need, everyone knows the roads are in bad shape, bridges are falling down, we need to invest in this public infrastructure, and maybe you talk about transit a little less or something. <laughs> but, right. but but certainly there, there, is, there would be public motivation to support the idea of investing in our, in our roadways. Well, a few years ago, I think the American Society for Civil Engineers gave most of the infrastructure here in the United States some states did better, other states did worse, but I think the overall grade was like a C minus. Mm. And they sent the alarm bills that said, look, we've got some bridges which are in really bad shape, need to be re rehabilitated, or we're talking about people who are going to get hurt yeah. in a few more years. So I think politically it should be tried while gasoline prices in general are to try yeah. to boost Right. It'd be easier to swallow if it was just another 50 cents yeah. on an already low price. Yeah. Yeah. That exactly. makes a lot of sense. Well, we've, we've circled around this mm -hmm. issue that I want to dive into a little bit more that uh, I'm familiar with having taken these econ economics classes. But what is an externality? How would you describe that to the public? And why is it so important? An externality, that's a good question. An, an externality um, is basically a side effect from the consumption of a product or a service that neither the buyer or the seller um, have to pay or somehow endure. Mm. So that if I'm a cigarette smoker, I buy Philip Morris or Marlboro or, or what have you, buy those from the retailer. Then I go into close quarters and I start smoke, smoking around people who, who aren't smokers or, well, I guess it doesn't make any difference. And I somehow, it bothers their nose, it aggravates their allergies. I have pushed my consumption of cigarettes onto other people who were not part of my transaction with a retailer from whom I bought the cigarettes or Philip Morris or Jay Reynolds or whomever. Yet these people have to bear the consequences of my transaction with that retailer and, you know, two steps removed with the, the manufacturer of the cigarette. And with, with gasoline, you know, the, the automobile um, uh, puts out these emissions, which can give people breathing problems, uh, respiratory problems. And yet they had nothing to do with uh, me buying the gasoline from Thornton's or the type of automobile I use, they're external to the transaction. There's sort of no price on them anywhere in the system. Yes. And you could argue, now that you bring that up, that's a good point, that the price is lower than what it would be or actually should be given that external effect. Mm. That external effect is not incorporated into the price. So someone else is suffering because of my consumption of a particular good uh, and the reason why I'm consuming so much of that good is because the price does not reflect that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you make gasoline taxes higher, you're going to hopefully make people conserve more. They'll drive less, which would help those who are adversely impact from the consumption of gasoline in general, purchasing of gasoline and use of, of gasoline, uh, oil-based products. Yeah. And, and in the emerging field of environmental economics, you know, people are trying more and more to actually put some prices 
on these externalities, which before, you know, the, the environment was just a free resource. We could pollute it as much as we want, and, and it didn't cost anybody anything, but it really did, right? Or we could consume these natural resources. We're just gifts from the heavens or something like that, and but it turns out they're limited. <laughs> uh, and, and so maybe that shouldn't be just a free-for-all, right? And so if we try and integrate all these things that are free because they're from nature uh, into our economic models and systems by putting a price of some kind on it. Uh, it, it may make the the system, the economic system, function more rationally, right? Exactly. You're in, internalizing. Yeah, internalizing. Trying to internalize these external costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of trying to determine these costs gets at something, a course that I've taught off and on over time. I, and a, a tool, benefit cost analysis, which is also used quite a bit in natural resources economics, you try to look at as you're doing mining or logging or what have you, what are the external costs as well as the direct cost of harvesting trees or taking coal out of the ground? And benefit cost analysis tries to recognize all the cost. Um, of, of doing so, and you you try to internalize these these external costs. And believe it or not, it, it was Ronald Reagan in uh, his administration in the um, 1980s that that um, mandated some type of benefit cost analysis of environmental regulations, et cetera. And the federal government has tried off and on over the decades to continue to do that, sometimes not so vigilantly, mm. but that's one way you try to assess these externalities, some type of benefit cost analysis. Our guest today here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mock, is uh, UofL's applied economist, Tom Lambert. He's going to be giving a talk, a public talk on Zoom. It'll be digital this coming uh, week from today, basically on Monday, September 14th at 7 p.m. You can register free for the talk at incentivizingsustainability.eventbrite.com. And this is put on by the Citizens Climate Lobby, your local Louisville chapter. You can find them on Facebook and you can find the national organization at citizensclimatelobby.org. What we're trying to do is sort of unpack some of the behavioral and microeconomic impacts of, of this uh, bill, uh, H.R. 763, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, which would put a tax on fossil fuel extraction, as I understand it, uh, and then redistribute uh, all, that, all those funds to every American household. Uh, and so it would sort of help redistribute wealth as well as uh, putting a price on carbon, which is... Uh, gets around it gets us towards internalizing all these externalities associated with carbon emissions uh, i want to spend at least some of the time here at the end though talking about um not just individual consumers and you know, go into the gas pump and things like that. But when we think about where we get most of our power from as households or businesses or even the University of Louisville, right? It's from monopolistic utilities like LG&E. Uh, so talk to us about the, how, about the way that these utilities work and how it can be that LG&E's charges do not cover all the costs of generating electricity or getting that natural gas to us. That's a good point, uh, a good question. And um, LG&E or Kentucky Utilities, you can only create and generate enough power uh, cheaply and efficiently by, by being large and having a certain geographic market area, etc. If you, as you probably know, if you try to split it in half, costs would go up. 
it's much cheaper given electricity generation uh, for them to, to cover a large area and, and, and to do it alone. And of course, that's why we, we have regulation of, of these utilities to try to keep them from charging whatever they want. Uh, they have to go before the Public Service Commission. Because they are a monopolist, as you point out, we, we have no other alternatives unless you want to heat your own house by using a fireplace, mm-hmm. uh, which many people don't want to do because of the fire risk, fire hazards. I guess there are other ways, but we, we really don't have any viable alternatives. And there's another reason why LGE does not have to internalize many costs is because they are a sole provider. They don't have any competition. There aren't many alternatives. I, I know some people may put solar power pa- panels on their house. Some people may, as I was just saying, try to heat their house during the wintertime by using a, a fireplace. Of course, then I don't know where you would get your lighting. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> there would be another <laughs> issue right there. So, um, But they don't have to in- internalize many of these external costs because they are a sole provider. They are a monopolist. If they did have to in- internalize carbon emissions, things like that, the, the kilowatt hour charge would probably be about four or five cents more for electricity generation. For And they, these are conservative estimates, about two cents per BTU, I should say, or however LGE puts it. I think they use something called CCF. I, I yes, that. CCF is on my bill, yeah. <laughs> okay, cubic something. Cubic <laughs> something. Something like that. It would have to be two cents more per each of those units of, of energy generated. Uh, but right, right now, they, they do not have to do that. I, I think there may be some taxes and fees in there, which the EPA have, has imposed on them. But I'm not sure if these incorporate all of the costs. Of course, I, I think there's a plan, or there was a plan under the Obama administration to reduce carbon emissions by a certain percentage by 2030. Yet the Trump people, from what I understand, I, I should have followed this a little bit more closely and regret it before we talk. But there, they delayed a lot of, postponed a lot of this um, mm-hmm. Uh, movement towards limiting emissions so the the power companies don't have as much incentive to do so. I will say this, though. I think a lot of the utilities can see the wind blowing toward renewable energy. Hmm. So as you've probably already discussed on this show, LG&E has quite a, quite or PPL, the, the parent company, has uh, invested quite a bit in solar panels, this farm that they have out in, in Shelbyville yep. or Shelby County, somewhere in Shelby County, I think Shelbyville, as well as research into renewable energy. And they've got this program going where you can sign up, uh, whatever it is, certain fee per month. Yep, um, the community solar program. So they're trying to get their customers to pay for it, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's, it's a recognition on their part that um, more and more people are wanting renewable. They're more cognizant of climate change. To deny climate change is not going to work, at least among the majority of the people. Um, at least some folks are concerned about climate change uh, enough to get them thinking and moving in that direction as well. Plus, they have the resources uh, financial resources to move in that direction. Yeah, we had the network set up, so I think 
if if this plan that Congress has or some variation of it comes to pass, this is only my opinion, but if you put enough money in the hands of people and they are given the incentive to move toward renewable energy, then LG&E will have the incentive to keep moving in the direction of solar power, wind power, although they say it's not that viable in this part of the country, but uh, mm-hmm. it would give them an incentive via the consumers to move in that direction. Yeah. Consumer purchasing power, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit at the end here about how we transition to more renewables and uh, and why why is it so important that the government subsidize these sort of emerging technologies of wind and solar uh, instead of just saying, well, let them compete on the free market? Well, I, I think and then, you know, some conservative economists, Adam Smith made this argument then when you, that some nascent industries industries which are up and coming and which have a a good viable future, sometimes they need help or encouragement from the government. Now, in the past, it's always been argued, well, we should have tariffs (laughs) from imports um, from other countries to protect these nascent but growing industries. I would argue that solar and wind should have some type of support from the government, at least as, as far as, and they currently do, research funding support to make the technology and to make the delivery of of solar and and wind power more feasible than what it is now. And it is slowly becoming more and more competitive year by year. I I think the government could play a role as, as far as continuing to support research in these areas, in fact, even increasing research in these industries. I think utility companies could be given incentives, subsidies, tax breaks, grants or what have you to expand their solar and wind generation and kind of move away from uh, the coal-powered and and, uh, the natural gas-powered energy. So the subsidies would matter as far as as helping these industries make uh, make a transition. And I think they would also reflect the fact that there are these externalities out out there, climate change, health problems, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I I guess uh, you're going to be focusing on this particular bill, but are there other things that you you really think uh, aren't getting enough advocacy around them right now that the economic solutions to the climate crisis that uh, ought to be getting more attention? Well, I think the job generation that is possible, thanks to solar and wind power, I mean, everyone thinks that if if you tax coal and natural gas more that that's going to be a job destroyer. Not necessarily. Hmm. If you have wind and solar um, energy expand as a result of coal powered and uh, natural gas powered energy contracting, I don't see where you end up having net job losses. And I think folks keep saying, well, if you tax automobiles more, excuse me, not tax automobiles more, but if you, if you tax gasoline more, you're harming the automobile industry. You could also have jobs created by providing more mass transit. Yeah, sure. Making so. more rail cars, making more buses. These are all, I, I don't see, like some other people, how we were guaranteeing job losses. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. And then you got to think about job quality, too. I mean, yes. th- there's not much more unpleasant and dangerous than coal mining, right? <laughs> exactly. Or, or something that is, is dangerous to the environment is blowing uh, the, 
the tops off mountains to get it cold. So yeah, yeah, and, I agree completely. And even that kind of activity they're doing with fewer and fewer workers these days. So uh, something like exactly. a solar industry uh, seems like you know healthy and and sustainable jobs that. We have to keep local, too. You can't really uh, export them. I suppose solar manufacturing could be exported, but installation, uh, it's got to happen here, right? Germany, I mean, you, you talk about subsidizing perhaps uh, the, the cleaner industries. Germany and China have subsidized and are, are world leaders. I think maybe China now more than Germany. Germany was for a long time. But those are two nations which uh, invested heavily in solar power technology, and they have top companies in those fields. Yeah. So, and that, those are high growth areas for the future. Most economists don't like for the government to go around picking, quote, winners and losers when it comes to different forms of businesses. But there's always been an, an argument made going back to Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations that, well, if you have certain industries which are up and coming, small, fledgling, but have great promise, particularly when it comes to um, the, the future economic viability of your nation, then they do deserve some type of government assistance of one form or another. Yeah, makes sense to me. I mean, we want to keep America a leader economically, right? Like we've got to get on top of these these emerging industries that we know we're going to need to rely on. We're going to run out of fossil fuels and climate change is going to make that even more urgent. So why not get ahead of the game? I hate to make this argument, but if they're not going to stop, then we have no choice but to do it as well. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, Tom, this has been super helpful. Uh, I've, I've learned a bunch and I'm looking more forward than ever to your talk. Uh, so everyone, just a reminder, you can join this uh, a week from now, Monday, September 14th at 7 p.m. You can register at incentivizingsustainability.eventbrite.com for uh, uh, L economist Tom Lambert's talk on incentivizing sustainability through carbon fees. Uh, any last things to recommend the talk uh, to encourage people to come on out uh, on September 14th? Well, I hope we, we shed some, some additional light on, on this bill, and I hope we get some interest out there among those in the public. And who knows, uh, after this election is over with this year, this uh, it, the bill could become front and center among many others next year, uh, no matter who gets selected president or, or reelected, whatever the case may be, because I think Congress is expected to still be democratic. So I'm sure this bill will come back and be discussed. That's right. So if you want your questions answered about it, too, this isn't a call-in show, but next week you can join and get your questions answered directly with Tom Lambert. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Tom. It's been great having you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been very, very enjoyable. Thank you so much. Great. Wonderful. Stay tuned, folks. Coming up in just a minute, it's your community action calendar right here on Forward Radio. Spread that love around all your life. 
here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, on your community radio station, Forward Radio 106.5 FM, Louisville, and broadcasting to the world at forwardradio.org. Become a part of the station there and contribute to keep us on air. We don't have advertising because we've got great folks like you who chip in 20 bucks every now and then to help keep us on the air another day. Let's take a look now at our community action calendar here. How do we make sustainability now? Well, we get active for it. We learn, we gather, we educate, and we take action for sustainability. So lots of opportunities to do that this week. So get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out, my friends. A lot happening this week. Uh, And it's a, hey, happy Labor Day, everybody. Uh, I hope you're thinking about workers and workers' rights and and maybe tying uh, what we just learned uh, from Professor Lambert about economics into uh, maybe cleaner, better jobs for everybody. How about that? Well, Coming up this Tuesday, September 8th at 5 p.m., UVL is hosting a great panel called We Can't Wait, Student Empowerment Through Activism. It'll be online, open to the public. Don't miss this important panel discussion by three of UVL's Martin Luther King scholars and social justice activists. They will talk about their experiences, their education, what's getting them up in the morning and what's keeping them up at night and what they expect to change as a result of their work. The student panelists will include Ari Linton-Smith, majoring in cultural nonprofit management through liberal studies, Nicole Sparling, majoring in biology and Spanish and minoring in social change and political peacekeeping, Uh, David Echevera, majoring in political science and minoring in social change. It'll all be moderated by the great, the wonderful Sherry Dawson Edwards, department chair and associate professor of criminal justice. Institutions of higher learning are known as crucibles for social conflict and change, although they are often at the forefront of progressive thought and action. They are also protectors of privilege and the status quo. The University of Louisville is no exception. Although educators often play a role in the fight for social change, historically it's the students who have created lasting change by forcing the hands of those in power. This year in Louisville has been like no other in recent history. The nation's and the world's eyes are on our city as thousands of people unite in peaceful protests like we saw. No justice, no derby. I was delighted to participate in that this past weekend against ongoing racial injustice and state-sanctioned violence. The recent killing of Breonna Taylor and other unarmed black people by police has led to rallying cries across the globe of say her name and no justice no peace these demands for change are being led by young people like nicole ari and david so check this out it's gonna be a great panel for just an hour tuesday the 8th at 5 p.m you can find the link to register at louisville.edu sustainability under events 
Also coming up right after that, you can go into another virtual uh, event at uh, Tuesday the 8th at 6 p.m. via Zoom. It's the next Olmstead Parks Steward Training Program, and it begins this week. Are you passionate about Louisville's Olmstead Parks and looking for a way to give back? The next Park Steward Training Program begins on September 8th, where volunteers can attend a series of virtual lectures and in-park training to learn more about park history, horticultural techniques, plant identification, and landscape management, all while meeting amazing new people and getting the opportunity to exercise ownership over these public green spaces that you care about. The one-time enrollment fee, a $50 donation to Olmstead Parks Conservancy, covers the cost to produce the lectures, training, and training and materials, and scholarships are available for those interested. So the Fall 2020 Park Steward Training will be held on Zoom on Tuesday evenings, starting the, uh, this week on the 8th from 6 to 7 p.m. On Tuesday the 8th, it'll be Olmstead Parks Conservancy Overview and Park History. You can learn about the mission of the Conservancy, the history of Olmstead Parks in Louisville, basic land landscape design tenants and successful projects completed by the Conservancy over the past three decades. On Tuesday the 15th, it will be about plant identification and integrated pest management techniques. Then on the 22nd, they take a turn at horticultural techniques and open spaces management. And it wraps up on the 29th with volunteer management and community engagement. Interpretive hikes and in-park training, which follow this virtual lecture series, will be scheduled based on group availability and local and state guidance for COVID. So you can learn more and you can register at olmsteadparks.org. That's O-L-M-S-T-E-D-P-A-R-K-S dot org. Now, coming up Thursday, September 10th, I've mentioned it before, it's Turn Up for Change, the great annual fundraiser for the Food Literacy Project. It's at 7 p.m. virtually on Thursday the 10th. You can learn more at facebook.com slash the food literacy project. Join us on Thursday the 10th for this virtual event to raise critical funds for the Food Literacy Project and Apron Incorporated. Let's gather for a live toast at 7 p.m. on facebook.com slash the food literacy project for turn up for change now during this incredibly difficult time your support of food justice and youth driven social and community change is more critical than ever the current health and economic crises have profoundly altered our lives and are disproportionately impacting our neighbors who are already marginalized by historic and systemic inequities hosting your own virtual house party or small gathering is a fun and easy way to support the food literacy project and apron incorporated the event will feature exclusive wine recommendations from John Johnson, owner of the Wine Rack. You can explore our local food system with farmer Ivor Chodowski of Field Day Family Farm. Celebrate the bounty of the harvest with a box of produce picked just for you by Farmer Ivor. Find delicious recipes developed by youth in our community. Draw inspiration from the Food Literacy Project cooking series and discover the joy of learning by doing with family-friendly activities to help build healthy habits and a connection to the land. Of course, the Food Literacy Project's mission is youth transforming their communities through food, farming, and the land. They're leveraging food and sustainable agriculture, youth leadership, cross-sector partnerships, and 
and neighborhood assets to work towards a vision for a healthy and equitable community where people and places thrive. Since 2006, they have strived to address the root causes of food insecurity and bridge change, bring change to the family table by expanding urban ag, farm and garden-based education and food access initiatives. Apron Incorporated was founded in 2011 by a group of individuals with ties to low local restaurant community. Their mission is to provide temporary limited financial relief to professional food and beverage industry workers here in Louisville who work at locally owned establishments and who are experiencing financial distress due to illness, injury, and even the pandemic. Food service professionals who've suffered by accident, family emergency, criminal act committed against a such person or other catastrophic event are eligible for assistance. And you can help raise funds for Apron Incorporated and the Food Literacy Project this Thursday. Uh, tickets for this fun- virtual fundraising event are available at foodliteracyproject.org. And join them on facebook.com slash thefoodliteracyproject this Thursday the 10th at 7 p.m. Now, we mentioned it last week. The Waterfront Botanical Gardens has some great events happening. And uh, this coming Saturday, September 12th at 10 a.m., they'll be doing a great class on creamy, dreamy plant-based soups. It's an interactive virtual program, and the Zoom link is provided. If you go to register for the class at waterfrontgardens.org, it'll cost $20 or $15 if you're a member of Waterfront Botanical Gardens. The Waterfront Botanical Gardens Garden to Fork Culinary Series is going virtual this fall, and on September 12th, they'd like to introduce you to one of the easiest fall staples in a plant-based diet, creamy vegetable soups. We'll discuss tips and tricks for making soups super creamy without a drop of dairy, and we'll uh, explore ingredient options such as potato, coconut, and nut milks, and the simple technique of throwing it all in the blender. (laughs) Learn how to select from choices of a veggie, creamy ingredient and herbs and spices for a simple template that will be your guide through your own at-home cooking journey. Instructor Helene Traeger-Kusman will demo a seasonally delicious ginger squash apple soup and give insight into using some superfoods, how to uh, better read grocery product labels, and how to use toppings to jazz up any plant-based dish as we approach the holiday seasons. She'll also share her recipe for a potato cauliflower soup. Registrants who cannot attend the live interactive Zoom meeting will be provided a recording of the virtual presentation so you can watch it at any time. Get it all uh, by going to waterfrontgardens.org and registering for the Saturday, September 12th, 10 a.m. interactive virtual program, Creamy Dreamy Plant-Based Soups. Now, also coming up this Sunday, September 13th, it's the last day to submit feedback for in support of a community grocery. If you support the idea that the Louisville Community Grocery should be given the $3.5 million that Metro Council has appropriated to them instead of letting the money go into private hands, well, this is the week to speak up. The Center for Health Equity wants to hear from you about what it's like to get food and groceries in Louisville. The 2017 Louisville Health Equity Report recommended that Louisville make healthy foods more accessible. The report suggested that it would take a lot of different solutions at many levels. That includes government policy organizations and businesses helping to make it easy for people to have a chance to get healthy foods. Please share your ideas. The Center for Health Equity will report your recommendations to the Metro Council and use them to help determine how the council's three-point $5 million bond allocation will be spent to provide a community grocery. Full info and links to submit comments 
are at louisvilleky.gov. You just search for community grocery and you'll find it top result. Coming up Monday the 14th at 3 p.m., it's Climate Change, Our Faith Values in 2020, a conversation between Dr. Catherine Hayhoe and Reverend Susan Hendershot. Hotter temperatures, rising seas, and extreme weather events are a few of the climate impacts we can expect in, to get worse in years to come. At its course, climate change is profoundly unjust. It exacerbates hunger, poverty, and even political instability, disproportionately impacting the most vulnerable. And climate scientist and evangelical Dr. Catherine Hayhoe will join Reverend Susan Hendershot to discuss the latest outlook on climate change and how to communicate the climate message effectively from a position of shared values. You can. Uh, this is hosted by Interfaith Power and Light, the Catholic Climate Covenant, and Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. You can find the link to register at facebook.com slash interfaithpowerandlight. And of course, just a quick reminder, coming up Monday the 14th at 7 p.m., Citizens Climate Lobby invites you to the talk by our guest today here on Sustainability Now, Uval economist Tom Lambert on incentivizing sustainability through carbon fees. You can get the link to register uh, at incentivizingsustainability.eventbrite.com. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Stay tuned. Lots of great stuff coming your way on Forward Radio, and I'll be back in your ears in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Y deja que te arru-